Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with growing alarm at the possibility Europe's largest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia in Ukraine, which is now at the front line in the current counter-offensive, could be blown up by the Russian occupiers in a false flag operation to be blamed on Ukraine or at the very least rendered inoperable by the Russians in a continuation of their campaign to destroy Ukraine's critical infrastructure. Joining us to assess whether there could be any radiological leakage following reports that the Russians are placing explosives on the roofs of reactors 3 and 4 is Mariana Bujarin, who is a senior research associate at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center with the project on managing the atom. She's the author of the new book, Inheriting the Bomb, The Collapse of the USSR, and The Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. Then we'll examine the role of the UN's IAEA, which has been issuing alarms since the Russians occupied the plant in March of 2022, and speak with Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. He co-authored the critically acclaimed book Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster, and we'll discuss the IAEA's decision to allow the operators of the ruined, irradiated Fukushima plant to dump radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. Then finally, we'll look into today's White House meeting with President Biden and Sweden's Prime Minister Christensen ahead of next week's NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, at which an attempt will be made to persuade Turkey's Erdogan to stop his blockade of Sweden's entry into NATO. Joining us is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior diplomat at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Joining us now is Mariana Bujarin, who is a senior research associate at the Harvard Kennedy School School's Belfast Center with the project on managing the atom. She's the author of the new book, Inheriting the Bomb, the Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mariana Bujarin. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Mariana. And the Russians, of course, have been in control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant since the February when they seized it, so essentially since March of 2022. And um, anything that happens there, just like the Hakoka Dam, is essentially their responsibility. And now they did bl- blow up the dam, even though they've tried to blame it on the Ukrainians, uh, which didn't, doesn't make any sense. Um, but apparently the blowing up of the dam was done rather recklessly, I don't know whether Russian troops were drowned, but certainly a lot of civilians, particularly elderly people who couldn't get out of their homes in time, were drowned. There's some earlier reports of ten to 15,000 Russian soldiers, which I wasn't able to get any verification on, so it's hard to know exactly what the effects were. But given 
the recklessness of that action, one can't dismiss the possibility of, of the Russians doing something crazy at Zaporizhia, which is obviously under attack now with the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So how concerned are you? Well, Ian, I have been concerned about the safety of that plant since it was occupied, as you say, in, in March 2022. And now, of course, the danger is even greater because of the counteroffensive, um, because it's such a critical moment in the war. Uh, you mentioned the Kachovka Dam. And of course, you know, the, the, it was a great big disaster, but there was a, a warped and twisted military rationale for blowing it up for the Russians. They freed up um, maybe 30 to 40,000 troops on that stretch of the, um, the, the sort of western part of their front, uh, about 300 kilometers, and redeployed them to uh, southern and, and eastern parts of the front. So they that was, that was the at least one of the reasons that they um, instigated that and they, they blew up the dam. So we know they're capable of committing these atrocious acts if they find them expedient for, uh, for their military purposes. Why would they cause a major radiological accident um, at Zaporizhia and whether that would affect the, the conduct of the war? I'm, I'm less convinced about, uh, although... I have to say, I think we need to stop trying to guess what guides Russian actions and 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 plan to the worst case scenario and say, if they are there, they, they have the run of the plan, they have had the run of the plan for over a year now, and they're capable of setting explosives in the places that, you know, they deem necessary or for, for their war, game, war aims, then we need to, to take these threats very, very seriously. Well, already President Zelensky is saying that the Russians have placed explosive packages on the roofs of uh, reactors three and four. Now, this has not been confirmed by, the, I think, the IAE, the International Atomic Energy Agency, have, have two people on the ground there. They haven't confirmed it, but on the other hand, they haven't had access to the roofs. So... What do we know about that? What's the latest on the possibility that they're placing explosives on the roofs? Well, indeed, this is what we know. We know that Ukrainians claim to have spotted, they do fly, um, you know, reconnaissance drones over the station now and then, we know that. And they might have spotted some devices that look like explosive devices on the roofs of these two uh, reactor units. We know that the perimeter of the station is mined, uh, but we cannot confirm what else is mined, perhaps inside of the reactor halls where they, the the core of the reactor, the, the fuel and the spent fuel pools are housed. Um, if it's if it's the explosives on the roofs that and the explosion is set off, that will and might cause damage to the actual building of the reactor, to maybe even to the con uh, containment chamber. But that will not necessarily cause a a nuclear accident. Uh, you would have to do quite a bit of explosive work and damage to the actual core, to the cooling systems. All of that is inside 
that uh, containment chamber. And all of that is basically where only Russians have access to, unimpeded access to. Uh, so, you know, any insinuation, if we are even given to believing what comes out of Kremlin, but any insinuations that somehow Ukrainians could cause that is is a complete nonsense. So even if, say, an explosion on the roof could be somehow false flag type of blamed on a Ukrainian stray shell, uh, you certainly cannot do that with any release of radiological you know, material into the atmosphere, any kind of radiological accident at the plant. Well, it's not like uh, Chernobyl at all. This, this is a very solid containment around and what there are seven reactors altogether. And I believe that most of them are in, in cool shutdown, although one of them, I think, is still a little hot. It is true. There are six reactors. Six. Um, okay. Right. They, uh, all of these reactors have been shut down at least since September. And you, as you mentioned, one of them was in hot, it has been in hot shutdown, still is. Uh, but that is a very lucky thing for all of us, um, which makes it unlike Chernobyl and also unlike Fukushima. Both of these accidents involved hot operating, you know, reactor cores. Here, the fuel has been sufficiently cooled that if it's a damage to, say, the cooling system, just the pumps or even the, the cooling pond that we know exists um, on the site of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, if that water were drained, if the dike was broken, uh, there would be still quite a bit of time, days, maybe even a week, before the water in these uh, reactor cores would boil down if no new water is replenished, uh, would boil out and then the fuel would start, start to heat up and ultimately uh, melt. So there's some some time that we have for, for, or we, I'd rather say the Ukrainian operating staff would have to respond to, to these um, accidents, deliberate or not. And, um, but of course, they, they're men with guns. There's Russian military in the plant, and if they're willing to go as far as to blow up a cooling system, they certainly could put, you know, men with guns at the entrance to the reactor hall and not let anyone in with even as much as a, you know, fire truck hose or something uh, of the sorts to, to pump water into the reactor cores. So uh, unfortunately, we have very little visibility into what's going on inside the plant. And as you mentioned, the two people from the IEA there, um, you know, it's very helpful to have them there, but we know that they're not allowed to go everywhere and they've been asked to, uh, they asked to, to, to be shown to. Uh, we have heard from uh, Director General of the IEA, Rafael Grossi, that they might request uh, from the Russians at the plant additional access. But that, of course, also depends on the Russians if they are willing to, to go along with that. So the Russians, though, have been targeting uh, electrical infrastructure inside Ukraine for some time now. And this is this, the biggest piece of electrical infrastructure in Ukraine, the Zaporizhia power plant. It's the biggest in Europe. So what can they do short of a radiological emission, something really crazy, because you don't know which way the wind is going to blow? What could they do short of that that would be punishing to Ukraine in the way that this campaign of attacking 
electrical and water and other vital infrastructure has been for some months now? Well, Ian, in one word, plenty. Uh, That is actually my biggest worry. Not so much the radiological uh, release, a nuclear type of accident. The Russians can simply damage the plant to the extent that it will not be worth recovering, um, that you can't repair it anymore. Uh, For one, blowing up the Kohovka Dam uh, basically means that the plant cannot be restarted until that dam is rebuilt. Because now, while the reactors are in, in shutdown, there's plenty of, of water in, in the little reservoir and maybe in aquifers and some other sources to keep these shutdown reactors cool. But to restart the reactors, you really need that, that plentiful water and reliable access to it. So you would need to rebuild the dam and refill re- that reservoir. So they have already hampered Ukrainian capacity to do that, even if the plant were to be recaptured tomorrow. Further, they can uh, set explosives to turbines that are you know, powered by the steam generated by the reaction, and then they produce electricity. Um, that's separate from the core, that's in the separate building, and those are essential systems uh, for the power plant. They can blow those up. They can, you know, cause huge damage if they choose to, again, short of a nuclear release. Uh, And we've seen how they behaved at the Chernobyl exclusion zone and at that station. They basically vandalized the place, and there's already... There's already reports of them carrying out equipment out of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, of them uh, breaking down the training center for the BDR reactors, where many of the operators from all over the world that work with these reactors would come in and be trained. Um, So they have basically dismantled that facility. So we can expect really a very huge damage. And that's, that's a $30 billion asset that they would, I'm afraid, they would endeavor to deprive Ukraine of. Well, they blew up the turbines on the Kahovka Dam, didn't they? They blew up the turbines on the of the uh, Kahovka hydroelectric station, for sure. Right. Um, and they can certainly do that um, again at Zaporizhia. All right, and they released something like 300 tons of uh, lubricants for the for the the uh, turbines, which have polluted everything downstream, along with all the dead animals and God knows what's ended up in the Black Sea. Indeed, it's a it's a huge humanitarian disaster, and it basically will change the microclimate down the, down the stream uh, and possibly affect agriculture. I mean, we have not even began to see the full scope of consequences from the breach of that dam. So let's talk a little bit about your new book, Mariana, Inheriting the Bomb, the Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. Just uh, recently, the dictator in Belarus, Lukashenko, made some outrageous remarks saying that now he's going to have nuclear weapons and that maybe he will share them with anybody who wants to join in with him in some kind of union. Not that there's too many takers in that regard, but it was a pretty amazing. I mean, I I think he forgot the the memo from Putin that uh, I own the nukes and you don't. You're my you're my flunky. But nevertheless, <laughs> that's something that's 
that raises the question of what happened back then. I mean, Belarus and had nuclear weapons and so did Ukraine. When the US negotiated the Budapest Agreement for them to give up their nuclear weapons and take them back to Russia. So what do you think is happening there in Belarus? And what, what kind of, what do you make of those bizarre comments from Lukashenko? Well, to begin with, you know, this is just another step in the process of unraveling of the kind of settlement of which sort of a nuclear settlement, a nuclear part of element of it was a major piece um, of, of the of the settlement over the collapse of the Soviet Union and who should uh, have, who should inherit the nuclear weapons and so forth. As to um, the statements of Belarusian leader Lukashenko, you know, we should take them with a huge grain of salt. Uh, yes, the, allegedly there will be now tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons uh, deployed to there, but they will be fully fully under Russian control. Uh, let's not forget that even back in the times of the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Un when the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons deployed to, you know, its satellite states and Hungary and um, uh, Czech Republic, uh, or Czechoslovakia at that time, uh, East Germany, and so forth, uh, those those countries had absolutely no access to those, you know, to those weapons. There was, you know, very firm control by Moscow. They simply didn't trust their, uh, their allies. Uh, it's part of their so-called strategic culture. So we can be rather sure that, that uh, Belarusian military people and certainly not Mr. Lukashenko himself will not have any any fingers on those buttons. Um, it is also, I mean, unfortunately, not against the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So uh, as long as these weapons remain under Russian control, they can be deployed to, um, to the allies' territories, just like the United States deploys its non-strategic nuclear weapons to six locations in Europe and in Turkey. Um, you know, it's a very small number of weapons, uh, maybe maximum 200 warheads, uh, but still. So for me, this move by Russia uh, to, to place weapons in Belarus is purely a political move to sort of say, well, if the United States can have its weapons and on the territory of their allies, then we sure surely can place our weapons on the territory of our ally. But in terms of the ranges or the kind of military advantages that it gains Russia, it, it, there really are none. They have Kaliningrad, they have the same systems in Kaliningrad, they can, they, you know, for all we know, they can already have nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. Um, they, there's plenty of ranges, um, you know, the delivery systems that can propel these warheads to, uh, to hold targets at risks anywhere in Europe. So it gains them very little militarily, but it's a, you know, allegedly a political move that, that raises again, this, this nuclear rhetoric. It seems that that is something Mr. Putin is very keen to do is just to keep playing this nuclear card in one shape or form. So just in closing, though, the Budapest agreements and the exchange was for Ukraine and Belarus to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for territorial guarantees, right? In other words, that that was that was the deal, and 
apologists for Putin who keep talking about the, the, the U.S. and NATO are to blame because of expansion of NATO eastward uh, seem to forget that, that Russia signed an agreement pledging uh, the, that they would respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Absolutely. It was, again, part and parcel of that settlement, post-Soviet settlement, where Russia agreed to accept the terms of that settlement, including that Ukraine should be in the borders that it was in in, in 1991, which included Crimea, right, in exchange for relinquishing the claim to this Soviet legacy, the Soviet nuclear legacy, relinquishing the claim that it is a successor state, uh, to the Soviet nuclear arsenal just as much as Russia is, right? Uh, and Belarus and Kazakhstan did the same in 1994. Uh, the, the significance, so the, the guarantees or the assurances in the Budapest Memorandum were really copied from other very important multilateral international documents such as the UN Charter, such as the 1975 a Helsinki Final Act of the OSCE, all of them um, reject the use of military force to change borders, all of them, uh, you know, kind of uh, recognize sovereignty and territorial integrity um, of Ukraine. The, the greater significance of the Budapest Memorandum is that became, it became um, a constitutive part of the broader nuclear non-proliferation regime. It was a document that was attached to Ukraine's accession to the NPT, the non-proliferation treaty, as a non-nuclear weapon state. That is, Ukraine relinquished its right um, to develop nuclear weapons in the future, right, for good, uh, as long as it's part of that treaty. And so the breach of the Budapest Memorandum, brazen breach by Russia, really sends ripples across the entire system, across the entire international nonproliferation regime. And, you know, other states are watching, too, and saying this is what happens when you give up that nuclear option. Uh, I'm sure there's, you know, a handful of states today and the future is long. There may be more in the future. Right. Well, you, you know that a lot of countries looked at what happened with the U.S. invasion of Iraq looking for nuclear weapons that didn't exist, and others have thought, well, the best way to uh, avoid a, a, an invasion is to get a nuke. So it's actually spurred countries to get nuclear weapons. So that's a conversation for another day, but I thank you so much for joining us, Mariana. Thank you so much for the invitation. And again, I've been speaking with Mariana Bujarin, who is a senior research associate at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfast Center with the project on managing the atom. She's the author of the new book, Inheriting the Bomb, the Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the role of the UN's IAEA, which has been issuing alarms since the Russians occupied the Zaporizhian plant in March of 2022. I wanted to
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Edwin Lyman, who is Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. And he's the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edwin Lyman. Well, thanks for joining us, Edwin. And I'm wondering about what authority the IAEA has. Uh, it's a, obviously a part of the United Nations, and it's been warning, uh, Grossi, the head of the IAEA, has been warning for the longest time about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and how dangerous it is to be in the middle of a battle, uh, which now, as the Ukrainian military moves to take over that area, there's fears that the Russians will stage some kind of false flag or try and blow something up and blame it on the Ukrainians or at the very least just destroy the facility as a piece of vital Ukrainian infrastructure. So I want to talk to you about that and the IAEA as well as of course the fact that the IAEA just gave Japanese authorities the go-ahead to release radioactive contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. So let's start with Zaporizhia. What's your sense of what kind of authority or leverage the world has via the IAEA to stop Russia from doing something crazy? Well, unfortunately, the IAEA has very limited, actually really no uh, real authority with regard to nuclear safety or or the military security of the facility. The the only true legal authority it has is uh, with regard to safeguards, which is its oversight of uh, nuclear materials and accounting for nuclear materials to make sure they haven't been diverted for uh, use in nuclear weapons programs. So as far as, you know, the potential for a sabotage attack on Zaporizhia, all they can do is appeal uh, to the good graces of Russia at this point, but uh, neither the IAEA nor the uh, international community writ large has any uh, any ability to, to shape events uh, uh, in the Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine, including the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So turning to the, your book, Fukushima, the story of a nuclear disaster. Explain, if you can, what the IAEA's decision there was to give the Japanese authorities the okay to go ahead and release an enormous amount of radioactive contaminated water into the Pacific. I believe uh, it's contaminated with tritium, is it not? Tritium, as well as uh, trace amounts of many other radioactive isotopes, including uh, iodine. 129 carbon 14. Uh, Japan is in a, a very difficult situation. The wrecked uh, ruin of the Fukushima nuclear plant is going to require many decades of cleanup at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars. And the 
plant has been generating steadily uh, radioactive water every day because of the flow of groundwater um, through the site that's infiltrating uh, the reactors and um, and washing away radioactivity from inside the damaged uh, reactor cores. So, so it's essentially a radioactive uh, water generating machine at this point, and they've been accumulating that radioactive water and filtering it. Uh, but there's uh, no matter how many times you filter it, there's still going to be some residual radioactivity in the water, including uh, the isotope uh, tritium, which cannot be effectively filtered out. So they've been accumulating these vast volumes of uh, mildly radioactive water that's already been filtered, and the uh, th that's posing operational challenges for the site as the number of tanks continue to increase. Um, so the Japanese are seeking to, or their plan is to discharge that water at a very slow rate and dilute it considerably before it reaches the sea. Well, what you're describing then is that the core melted down to the water table. Is that is that the problem? Um, well, not exactly. What happened was um, the three of the reactors melted down. They uh, melted through the bottom of the reactor vessels and ended up in the floors of, of the reactor buildings. Um, but those cores are still hot and they still require cooling. So the Japanese are pumping water uh, through the reactors every day. But because of the holes in the bottom of the reactor vessels, that contaminated water uh, is is um, flowing down to the basement where it commingles with groundwater, which is uh, flowing down from the hills to the west of the site. And so it's um, uh, so the uh, the processes needing uh, that are needed to keep the reactors cool are generating radioactive water, but that can't be contained, and that's mixing with groundwater and washing into the sea. And that's that's um, so the Japanese are trying to collect as much of that water as they could to prevent it from being released. So, as you point out, then it just keeps generating radioactive water on a daily basis. How long will it take to cool the core? Well, um, they're uh, until the um, reactors are fully decommissioned and and decontaminated and the cores are fully stabilized and removed, which could take decades, um, that this process is going to continue to some extent. Uh, no one ever imagined uh, in the history of nuclear power that you would end up with such a, a long-term problem. You know, even, uh, you know, if you look at the Three Mile Island accident in the United States where one reactor had a partial meltdown, uh, there was no similar situation. So it, it really is a, uh, something that was never planned for, never expected, and is just having these long-term consequences, which uh, are uh, seem to be an unfortunate potential outcome uh, of the use of nuclear power when it goes wrong. So what does this do then for those that are trying to suggest that nuclear power is the answer to global warming? Well, I think that there's a lot of misleading uh, information being put out now. Nuclear power has undergone this uh, greenwashing, uh, and the industry and its supporters are really trying to 
uh, rebranded as totally clean energy. And with regard to its generation of greenhouse gases, um, it, it's certainly cleaner than fossil fuels, even if you look at the whole fuel cycle, but that's only one component. And you can't ignore the fact that nuclear power uh, as a byproduct of generating energy generates highly radioactive materials, which are potent carcinogens and which have to be isolated from uh, the environment for many hundreds of thousands a year. So it's really hard to see how you can call that uh, clean. And I think it. Uh, this is one illustration of some of the uh, potentially unexpected consequences, again, when uh, you have a nuclear uh, plant accident. So uh, nuclear power is not going to be a viable energy source unless those who are responsible for regulating and operating it really come to terms with these consequences and apply the appropriate measures to make sure that uh, it is as safe as possible. But by uh, engaging in denial and misbranding, and um, then they're only opening the door for potentially more severe events in the future. So what will the consequences be for all this radioactive water ending up in the Pacific Ocean? Well, if the Japanese plan is carried out according to uh, you know, the parameters that are being set, uh, the, the uh, radioactive material is going to be so dilute that it's not going to lead to um, uh, doses anywhere near what uh, people uh, receive from natural sources of radiation, for instance. So uh, it's hard to argue with the numbers as long as they carry out the program in the way that they say they will with, uh, of course, uh, monitoring to ensure that their assumptions are validated before they go forward. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's, you know, it's a good thing to do. I think it is the least bad of a bunch of bad options. Uh, that water uh, continuing to accumulate on site is only going to cause problems for the personnel on the site, and you have to worry about the occupational risks as well. And it also poses a risk in the event that there was a uh, another serious earthquake or tsunami that could damage multiple tanks and cause the water to spill out into the sea in an uncontrolled fashion rather than a controlled fashion. So it, it um, as unfortunate as it appears, uh, this is probably the least bad way to manage this radioactive waste. But the point you were making earlier, though, Edwin, is that that the plant will continue to generate uh, radioactive water because it's going to take for how long? Years? Decades for the, Many for the plant to be commissioned? Right, but the you know the, they have to get a handle on the on the situation as it is today, or it'll just continue to accumulate uh, in an unsustainable fashion. So uh, there, there really is no good answer to this. So is there? There's no better way to deal with this then. This just keep pumping water in to cool it down. Well. Um, that's really the, the only option they have. The, uh, these reactors are so heavily contaminated and damaged that there's um, no way for humans to enter. Uh, there's certainly no remediation work that can take place at this point. Uh, the 
uh, potential of robots for doing work is still um, a ways away. Uh, they're very limited in their own capabilities. So it, it seems crude, but that, you know, the, the only option they have is just keep pumping water in uh, to remove that residual heat and to prevent uh, further damage to the fuel. Well, Edwin Lyman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Edwin Lyman, who's the Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. And he's the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into today's White House meeting with President Biden and Sweden's Prime Minister Christensen ahead of next week's NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, at which an attempt will be made to persuade Turkey's Erdogan to stop his blockade of Sweden's entry into NATO. But the atoms here, in spite of hysteria, it flourishes in Utah as well as Siberia. And whether you're a black, white, red, or brown, the question is this when you boil it down. To be or not to be, that's the question. The answer to it all ain't military datum like who gets there firstest with the mostest atoms. No, the people of the world must decide their fate. They got to get together or disintegrate. I hold this truth to be self-evident that all men may be cremated equal. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Aslan. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Sweden's Prime Minister Christensen met with President Biden today at the White House, I guess ahead of the next week's NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. President Biden is heading off on the weekend. He'll be in London and meeting with King Charles on Sunday and then going to uh, the NATO summit and also visiting Finland, which is the latest member of uh, NATO. But Sweden's membership in NATO has been stalled by Turkey, with Hungary saying uh, that they'll block it as long as Turkey blocks it. But if Turkey agrees to let Sweden in, then Hungary will stop it's blocking uh, Sweden's entry. So what happened at the White House today? Yeah, I don't have anything more than uh, the official statements. Clearly, uh, this meeting was arranged because uh, President Biden and the US in general wanted to show the strong support of uh, uh, Sweden joining uh, NATO. But uh, the question was, would uh, uh, President Biden put some heavy pressure on uh, 
uh, Turkey, which he can do in many ways. In particular, uh, he can refuse to sell uh, F-16s, uh, fighter planes to uh, Turkey. But so far, I have not heard any such signal. Well, apparently Biden has tied the sale of F-16s to Turkey with Sweden's acceptance into NATO, or Turkey stopped its frustrating that. And also the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez, he said he'll block any F-16 deal unless Erdogan makes way for Sweden's membership. So has Erdogan got the message? I doubt it. And of course, it was very unfortunate that uh, a Quran was burnt in Stockholm a week ago, which is legal in the uh, in Sweden, according to uh, the court's interpretation of um, freedom of expression uh, laws. Uh, so uh, Erdogan has uh, complained uh, loudly about this, uh, as one uh, would have expected. And this um, was done by uh, a, a, an Iraqi uh, atheist and Islam Islamist outside the main mosque in Stockholm, while uh, uh, half a year ago, another Quran was burned outside uh, the Turkish embassy by uh, somebody who seems to be a Russian finance provocateur uh, in Stockholm. So, uh, and Sweden uh, has not managed to do anything about this. And the big thing that um, Erdogan has uh, been complaining about is that uh, he alleges that about 100 uh, Turkish uh, Kurdish refugees in uh, Sweden are terrorists, and he wants to have them uh, deported uh, to Turkey. In fact, uh, I think that he has got two uh, Kurds um, uh, deported uh, to Turkey. But uh, in the other cases, it doesn't seem to be an illegal case against them. So you mentioned that the burning of the Koran obviously inflamed Erdogan. And previously, that right-wing Danish politician who apparently was act- is on the Russian payroll burned a Koran in front of the, uh, the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. You can see why the Russians think that's a good idea, because it is having a, an effect. And, of course, we know that Erdogan is quite close to Putin. And what do you think is going to happen at the NATO summit? Obviously, they don't want to start the summit uh, with disunity. The the whole purpose is to celebrate unity. But Turkey's the odd man out, aren't they? Indeed. And uh, one wonders how much will the West, NATO as a whole, and in particular the U.S., tolerate uh, from Erdogan? who's running against all the principles of a state of rule of law and uh, uh, democracy and freedom of uh, the media. So uh, the question is, how far is Erdogan prepared to go? Uh, I'm no expert on uh, Turkey, but uh, it appears as if uh, Erdogan is prepared uh, to go all the way. But uh, clearly the White House here knows better. And I'm somewhat surprised that um, both uh, President Biden and the Secretary of State 
Blinken, who are very clear on where they are standing, have not hit harder on Turkey and Erdogan as yet. So what, given the Swedish Prime Minister's mission to get American support, which he already had at any rate, to, for entry into NATO, what did he bring to the table and what did he get? It appears to me that he didn't come with anything in particular. He came here in order uh, for uh, President Biden to show his strong support of Swedish um, membership of uh, uh, NATO. And now it's really up to uh, 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 Biden versus Erdogan to sort this uh, issue out. Uh, Sweden has uh, formally complied with all the legal requirements that uh, uh, Turkey had. Uh, you can say that uh, Swedish legislation on uh, uh, terrorism was uh, somewhat um, soft before. Now it is uh, is uh, not. So Sweden has uh, changed uh, its laws, even the, uh, the constitution, in order to comply with legitimate uh, demands from uh, Turkey's uh, side. So now that uh, those uh, demands have been uh, fulfilled, and the Turkish answer is the Swedes uh, think that they have fulfilled our demands, we don't think so. And that is not under Erdogan, but his whole administration that are saying that. Also, the new foreign minister, who's considered to be quite professional and not a hardliner. Well, of course, Erdogan ran and got re-elected in very unfair elections, I might add, He's jailed so many journalists and so many opposition figures, and the most uh, likely candidate to defeat him, he made sure that he didn't run. Through through a law that's been passed in Turkey that you can't insult Erdogan. So it couldn't be more different from the tolerance that Sweden shows. As you mentioned, they allowed these two characters to burn a Koran in front of a mosque uh, because of the free speech laws. So there is a fundamental difference here between a sort of autocratic state and a free democratic state that some argue may be too free. Yeah, I would argue that, uh, but uh, th this would be in line with the U.S. Uh, First, uh, First Amendment, uh, the, the laws that uh, Sweden currently have, while the other Scandinavian countries, for example, don't have such uh, uh, laws. Uh, there it would be um, uh, prohibited to be as blasphemous uh, as to buy a Bible or Torah or or Quran. But in Sweden, it's uh, unfortunately, I would say, uh, allowed. Uh, but uh, with, with regard to the um, uh, summit in Vilnius, I actually was in Vilnius a few days ago. The big thing now is, of course, how uh, Ukraine will be treated. So it's also unfortunate that uh, uh, Turkey's uh, nonsense about uh, Sweden will block the attention, uh, attention from the biggest issue. And here the U.S. Uh, should be pushing for Ukraine being admitted uh, 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 to NATO, as the U.S. position was uh, in Bucharest in 2008. 
but uh, the US has not said anything in particular about uh, how Ukraine now can join uh, uh, NATO, while many East European uh, countries uh, are much more forthcoming with regard uh, uh, to Ukraine than the US is. So it's not only that Turkey is blocking uh, Sweden, which would be a valuable addition to NATO, but it's also distorting, uh, uh, as you said before, uh, this NATO summit should be a sign of unity. And now it will be uh, if uh, Erdogan doesn't turn around, uh, an, an embarrassment of bureaucratic nonsense. Well, already, though, Finland has an 800-mile border, doesn't it, with Russia? I mean, everything that Putin is doing in terms of his his idea that somehow NATO is encroaching on him, he is absolutely, it's created a situation where it's, it's all backfired on him, where now he's got an 800-mile border uh, with NATO in Finland uh, and the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. So... You clearly know a lot about Russia, having served there as a Swedish diplomat, and you know a lot about Ukraine as well, Anders. I, I imagine all the people around Putin have to know what a catastrophe this war has been. I'm not sure that Putin knows it, but is there any way for him to recognize how this thing has been a disaster and that it's it's Russia's gained nothing, and the destruction of Ukraine is a, it's a war crime. It's almost genocidal. I mean, Russia's position in the world is not that it was particularly in good shape in the, in the first place, but just in general, and particularly after now you've had this mutiny, as Putin calls it, or coup attempt, as others describe it from Prigozhin, it's not looking good, but at the same time, what's your sense of the Russian elite, collectively they must know that this has been a catastrophe, this war. Sure. But if we start with Putin, Putin's big lesson is, I have time, uh, that uh, he always uh, acts slowly, deliberately, and thinks that he will be more patient uh, than, than others. So far he has been right on this. I doubt he will be uh, so in this case. And another general Russian lesson is always escalate. And this is what Americans uh, tend not to understand. They want to offer an off-ramp. Uh, the, the word doesn't exist in Russian for good reasons, because Russians don't think like that. The Russians don't want an off-ramp. They want victory. And uh, uh, therefore, one should uh, just uh, escalate and escalate until one wins when dealing with uh, Putin. What we don't know around Putin is uh, how uh, his uh, uh, groups are divided. Putin has very skillfully played everybody against everybody below him. And uh, now with this uh, Prigozhin-Wagner revolt, uh, he went too far. And that has not happened um, before. And uh, uh, Prigozhin made a lot of money in Syria on oil, gas and fertilizer. And he did that together with General Surevikin, 
the deputy commander of uh, uh, Russian troops in Ukraine, uh, who apparently or allegedly has now been arrested. We don't know. He has uh, just uh, disappeared. And uh, more importantly, with Gennady Timchenko, who's the richest uh, uh, St. Petersburg crony of uh, uh, Putin. So uh, Timchenko, that's the real power. That's one of the uh, uh, three big cronies around uh, uh, Putin that we have not seen for a long time. He normally doesn't appear in public, so that's uh, nothing uh, uh, strange. But this is the, the, the wealthiest real businessman around um, Putin, and he was allied with uh, Prigozhin and Surovikin. And this cannot be easy for uh, Putin to handle. So these are all these strange things underground that we don't really know. But this uh, might explain what Surovikin's, uh, sorry, Prigozhin's uh, men in one day uh, could march uh, 800 kilometers towards Moscow and stop only 200 kilometers from Moscow. The surprise is not uh, really that they got so far, but that they stopped. And this is what we uh, don't understand. And we don't know what is happening in this um, uh, top level, uh, these top level intrigues in the, the Kremlin today. So just in closing then, Anders Aslan, this counteroffensive underway, which many analysts are saying has slowed down, etc., but it does seem to be making steady progress. What do you think is likely the military aims here? Because my understanding is that they, they want to go through to the Sea of Azov and cut off Crimea. Is that a possibility that they would then be in a position to bargain Crimea for, for the getting Russia out of the rest of Ukraine? What do you think is the, is the end game here? Uh, short of a complete Ukrainian victory, which seems pretty ambitious. Yeah, I think that uh, the ambitious uh, target is likely to be right because uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, military must be in uh, disarray now, and they have probably lost uh, 25,000 Wagner soldiers, uh, probably their uh, best uh, soldiers, while they are uh, fighting uh, internally about who should uh, come out on the top. And as you said, what we hear now is that the Ukrainians are attacking on in four areas. They are doing so slowly, and they are because they don't want to lose too many soldiers. The Ukrainians report that this is the most mined area you can imagine, and therefore they move slowly, slowly, and have taken. Uh, a couple of hundreds of uh, square kilometers, which is not much, but it is uh, still gains of territory in all three areas. And these are uh, towards Melitopol, which would cut off uh, uh, the land bridge between Crimea and um, and Donetsk, and towards Beryansk, which is a major uh, port on the Azov uh, Sea, also cutting off uh, the la land bridge. Uh, it's uh, in Bakhmut, and uh, where they have been fighting in Donetsk. And then it is uh, uh, on the other side of uh, Kherson, of Dnieper at uh, Kherson. So these are the four things that are reported. 
and uh, the Ukrainians are moving slowly, the Russians are gaining nothing, and um, the question is if we will see a significant uh, uh, breakthrough or will we just see uh, mi uh, minor breakthroughs. What the uh, report is that the Russians have three uh, defense lines and the Ukrainians are so far only touching in these four areas on the first uh, uh, defense uh, line. Uh, what uh, the commander-in-chief, uh, General Zaluzhny, uh, stated in uh, the Washington Post on Saturday is we need air power, we need uh, long-range mi missiles. These are the two big lessons that uh, the U.S. military teach, that you need to get air control in order to uh, uh, gain territory, and Ukraine does not have it. Uh, uh, the Ukrainians each side, uh, each day uh, report how many um, sorties both sides have, and the Russians have about uh, 40, while Ukraine has 10 to 20. So both uh, sides actually fly every day, but uh, the Russians have always more uh, sorties uh, than uh, Ukraine. Well, Anders Aslan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, as always, Ian. A great pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Anders. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences and worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
one more life. 